Our guest today is the true definition of turning tragedy into triumph. His story is one of a highly sought-after athlete's destiny of being drafted to the NFL only to have those dreams shattered by a stray bullet. That bullet would also serve as a catalyst to help his life pivot in a similar yet unimaginable direction. As a top-tier athlete of a different kind, one with Olympic possibilities, powerlifting accolades, and serve as an inspiration for athletes of all physical abilities. We hope that you're inspired by our guest today. His name is Garrison Red, and that show starts right now. Let's go. Yeah, because I'm trying to listen to your incredible story, and it's just breaking up, breaking up, breaking up. I'm trying to piece together what you're saying. I go, okay, this is not going to work. Let's get yeah. a better connection so, here. I want people to hear what you have to say. Yeah, so I guess we can start from the beginning now. You know what I mean? Yeah, let's do that. Let's start. Right. If we could just start from the beginning of how you ended up. Okay. So, in this session. all right. So, my name is Garrison Red. Once again, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, um, and I'm a T12 paraplegic. I suffered a spinal cord injury when I was 17 years old. I was outside on an ordinary summer night, and there was a guy outside shooting, and I got struck with the bullet. Um, it wasn't intended for me, but what I say, if somebody's outside shooting, then they're shooting to injure someone or hurt something. But um, let alone, um, I was paralyzed from the waist down, and actually, when I was in the hospital, it changed my whole perspective on life because of the fact that when you play football all your life and, you know, you had aspirations of going to the NFL and then now you have to depend on a wheelchair to get around, um, it could be very, very depressing and it could be yeah. a very turbulent time for you. But the, initially the doctor, like on probably was like the second day of being in the hospital, the doctor came to me and was like, I heard you're such a great football player and you're loved by so many people and you're such a good person that if something bad could happen to you, you know, there's tons of great things that's going to occur in your lifetime. And um, so, you know, my first thing is like, what about football? And she, you know, the doctor was like, you may not be able to be the player, but you can one day be a coach. And, hello? No. no. Yeah, we're right here. Right. Yeah, we're right here. We're right here. Yeah, I heard a little static. All right. Yeah. So then, um, yeah. So then she says, one day you can be the coach. I had, and then I thought about it from a different um, point of view, like as far as the head coach of a football team is the leader. That person leads 52 guys in, and ultimately it's up to them to make the final decision, to call the final play on the game, whether it, the game is, if the game is on the line. And at the end of the day, everybody points the finger at the head coach and if they win and if they lose, so, and if your team loses. Right. That just really changed my perspective on wanting to be a leader. And then when I'm in the hospital, um, at that time, I probably weighed like 180 pounds, bench press 315 pounds. Um, pretty, pretty nice. small. And yeah. At 17. And I'm in the hospital and I'm amongst other, um, children that never had the ability to run, never had the ability mm. to walk, never had the ability to play football or wrestling whatever sport, you know, or you got to be very, you know, you need to ambulate and have to do that. So from there, I was empowered and enlightened, inspired by them 
you know, being happy and just living life with pretty much no care, knowing that they have all of these issues and difficulties to just carry out their life. And with that said, I the depression that I was in, and I became optimistic. And at the end of the day, um, you know, I look back to you know, where I'm at now as a team with the Tower Powerlifter, training for the Paralympics in 2021. Um, maybe this was all a part of a plan because now I can impact people across the world and just individuals in America where American football is played. So yeah. I look at the bigger picture of things. I, th- I think you have to find a way to take any negative experience and turn it into a positive. That's the only way to move forward. But you must have gone through a period where, I mean, this is a dramatic change to yeah. happen. And at such a young age, too. Right. And then you were a very well-developed athlete as well, so you love physical performance. So it, it must have been really dark for a while when this first happened. Yeah, it was. It was and it wasn't. Um, luckily, my parents are very, very – um. They're my support system. And um my mother, she has a background in psychology because she's an addiction counselor. Mm, okay. So she really helped me change my mindset. And 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 as far as like initially, she's like, No one's gonna feel sorry for you in life. Um, no one's gonna have sympathy for you. You have your whole life ahead of you, and I'm not gonna allow you to let this incident, let this injury be, control you, be you. Um, you have tons of great qualities and you know, everything happens, you know, you never know the reason why things happen, but, um, and I, we don't like to use the term everything happens for a reason, but that's why we reverse it. We don't know the reason why things happen. So with that said, um, you know, it was more or less of me just developing and just taking everything one day at a time. I think, um, a lot of times people forget that Rome wasn't built in a day. So right, it's tons of obstacles that's going to occur in life. Um, that any of us is going to face. Right. Well, it's just that mine's might have occurred earlier than someone to prepare me for future endeavors. And like my aspirations are so big is that, you know, maybe it took something like this just to, you know, make me see life for what it is and as how far I can go. Um, now, like, you know, a lot of people, um, are, you know, get inspired by, you know, some of the things I do, such as, you know, my, I do fitness videos typically. Yeah. Also, yeah. um, I do talks and, um, I'm one of those people that try to, you know, relate and let everybody know that everybody is going through something, but you still have to persevere through it. And that's, that's pretty much how my mindset is now. Like, I just know that every, you know, you can have a bad day, you can have a few bad hours, but. At the end of the day, life is long, so you're going to have a lot more good things. Right. Now, when did you when, when did you start getting back into physical training? How long after this happened you started getting Honest, back into a routine that you do now? Honestly, um, it started as like probably like three years after my injuries. Um, the reason being is because at first, I didn't want to play any adaptive sports. That's what right. we call sports for individuals with disabilities. I didn't want to right. play any adaptive sports because I, I didn't see, like, where it can go. Like, I don't know any professional adaptive sports. At the time, I didn't know any, like, professional adaptive sports players. And it's like – and then I also had that part of me that was reluctant to engage in sports, put all my time and effort into part, participating in a sport again, and it's taken away from me. Right. Oh, so right. That was another um, 
issue that I was like pretty much, you know, had to overcome. And then one day I just said, you know, let me get a gym membership. Um, I was coming home playing video games and then it just wasn't my life. Like I said, there's more to life. And at the end of the day, I started going to the gym as a hobby and I tell everybody this, um, I lost probably like 60 pounds. Remember I was telling, I weighed 180 and then after my injury, I probably went down to all the way like 120, you know, just by not being active and not Mm -hmm. lifting things of that nature. Um, so at that point, when I returned back to the gym, I probably was like 118 pounds. Um, and I probably could only lift the bar at that time. This was about it. And this, yeah, this wasn't too long ago. This was probably some time ago. And, um, but I only could lift the bar. And that was another thing. Like I used to lift 300 plus <laughs> yeah. just barely lifting the bar. You know, <laughs> it's like, so I just lifted the bar one day and um, I would go to the gym like three times out the week. I had an LA fitness membership. I'll go three times out the week for 15 minutes, just for 15 minutes. Um, Because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to train. And I just didn't have that um, motivation at the, at, at the way I am now, you know, and motivating to go every day. But I didn't have that. Like, I didn't have anybody there, like, you should go to the gym. And I wasn't training for anything. That was another big thing. Mm-hmm. And then I started doing research, um, just like individuals living with disabilities and, um, you know, not being active, not going to the gym. And you, it's, it's alarming how many people suffer from cardiovascular and, like, secondary ailments uh, yes. in regards to their spinal cord injury. So, I just said, you know, let me go to the gym to live longer. I just want to be healthy, feel good. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I just started building it up and I started becoming, um, you know, I started getting into a routine. So from three days a week, 15 minutes might have went to four days a week, um, 40 minutes. And then before I knew it, I was going six days a week for two hours for like two years straight. And it was just to clear my head and get out stress reliever. And then one day I ran into this um gentleman um who had a wheelchair football team <laughs> and it's like yesterday and this is around the time I used to work at the IRS and I was like I want to leave my job but I don't know what I could do and what I'm going to do but I just want to leave and then he's like come play wheelchair football and I went out and I'm telling him I'm like I only could play the quarterback because I don't want to like how does this work if I fall on the floor and break something yeah. <laughs> I got to go to work yeah. tomorrow like this ain't like <laughs> injured reserve and still get paid or anything like, <laughs> so he's like eh, don't worry about it so actually while I was there I met this um, gentleman named John Hammer who was the president of Wheelchair Sports Federation and he also does a lot of work with the Wounded Warriors Project as well and he's like yo you could be a great athlete like. I see like how athletic you are. You're in shape. I think you should, um, find a sport. And I think one day you could be a Paralympic gold medalist. So at this point, I'm like, I don't like gold medalist. Like this is pretty elite. He's like, (laughs) and I said, all right, bet. So, um, I'll take, I took him up on his offer. I said, we could, you know, I'm willing to participate and try a sport. It just can't be a team sport because now I'm like 30. At this time, probably like third, 29. And I'm like, I don't really have time, you know, to get the team skills. But if it's an individual sport, you know, I could just train towards it each and every day, you know, put dedication and hard work. And if he says I could win a Paralympic gold medal, then it's going to work. <laughs> like everything's going to um, work out in my favor. So he connected me with like the best wheelchair track team in the country, which was the New Jersey Navigators. 
And um, so I was doing track and field, like javelin, discus, shot put, and also wheelchair track racing. Um, I liked wheelchair track racing for the fact, simple fact that um, you know, it it's a very exciting sport. Um, it's yeah. just like running, like sprinting. Right. But I told him like I couldn't do anything past fifteen hundred meters. That's just too long. I don't want <laughs> yeah. to do anything for that long. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like don't worry about it so like a month or two go by and it's competition like a competition week called tri-states and he's like there's a power there's a powerlifting competition a power powerlifting competition i think you could do well how much do you weigh you don't look like you weigh that much so at this time i'm thinking like i weigh like 140 pounds and he's like he's like you don't know your weight i'm like yeah most like um you know clinics and doctor facilities they don't have weight a scale for individuals that cannot stand (laughs) so he's like don't worry we got tons of wheelchair scales and you know we'll get you weighed in and we'll enter you in a competition so he entered me in a competition and with no training at all weighing 120 pounds i was able to lift 250 pounds and Mm -hmm. two days later a team usa performance manager called me. It was like, I need to start vying for a spot on Team USA Power Powerlifting Team. I'm like the strongest person in the country at 120 pounds. And I'm like, oh, wow. So I'm thinking it's fake and everything. I'm like, <laughs> I tell my coach at the time, I'm like, some mysterious lady from Team USA. He's like, oh, I didn't mean to tell you. Because you're like at the top of the rankings in 120 pounds in the country. So then from there, they flew me out to the Olympic training facility where Michael Phelps and everybody done passed through, stayed in the same dorms and things of that nature. And I was able to lift like 275 pounds um, with like a month of training. So then from there, they was like, you're the real deal. Like, towards <laughs> qualification and things of that nature. But um, it just like was a drastic turnaround from one day not playing sports to Next day, being known as like one of the strongest people in the country in my weight class, well, which I am the strongest in the country in my weight class. But um, yeah, it's like drastic turnaround then to be one of the strongest internationally as well, which is crazy. But it's just that must, that, that must do a lot for your just your self esteem and your mood. I mean, that must feel really around. good. Yeah, yeah, it must feel really up. good. Well, actually, I feel better like when I compete in able body competition. So, like, I do RPS, PL meets as well, and with my feet down, bench pressing, and um, you know, just beating people that you know ordinary or outlifting people that's like twice your size and full use of you know all their limbs. You know, you know that's like gratifying, but more or less, it's for other people out there to know that. Right. You could do it too. Like I'm right. I'm not the only one that could do it. You could do it too. And so and it shows people like and it like if I'm in a gym outlifting some which I outlift a lot of people in a gym, but then they'll be there like, wow, like, you know, it just changes their perspective on their life as well. Because a lot of times people think of all of these things they can't do. Mm-hmm. But don't look at the picture right in front of them. Like if you do such certain things you will get to the point where you need to be. Um, it's a series of small steps that create that big step at the end of the year or at the end of the day or whenever. So yeah. that's what I tell people. Like you just have to put the work in. You have to be consistent. And then opportunity may present itself. You don't know how good you are at something until you actually try it. <laughs> yeah, right. well, that's definitely true. Yeah, it all starts with that belief system, man. And they just need to see someone start believing because most people, like I said, they can create a million and one ways of why not. 
And yeah. he's like, oh, not me. I can't do that. Or, you know, this is this is what the cards have been dealt to me. I just got to deal with it. It's like, nah, man. It's just like, so yeah. that's what it really helps to see someone like you showing them like, nah, there's there's more out there. You haven't even touched the surface just yet. Exactly. And like, um, so that's, you know, that's more or less, you know, how my outlook is. Um, but it was, it's funny because it was like, at first it was be like mostly disabled individuals that would reach out to me. And then more and more able-bodied individuals started reaching out to me because of the fact that they became comfortable, like talking to me, like we're in the gym lifting together. They could ask questions to me that ordinarily they wouldn't ask to someone else with a disability because, you know, we might feel it's unethical or it's not, it's insensitive, but yeah. uh, they would ask me the questions because a lot of times they want, you know, just um basically they want the knowledge and education. So that way when they dealing with maybe one of their family members or yeah. something along those lines, because I get a lot of that, like, you know, my cousin suffered a was injured in a car accident, or my brother was injured in a car accident. Yeah, I just need something, you know, to uplift them. Like I don't know where. Well, to- I, th- I think sometimes people don't know how to act with people with disabilities. Meaning, maybe there's someone in a wheelchair right behind yeah. you, and you're you're standing there with the door open for ten minutes, you know, waiting for this yeah. guy. Exactly. And the guy's like, it's okay, it's okay. I got the door, right? You don't have to stand there for ten minutes. Right. But the person's trying to be polite. Their intentions are good. And then there's people going, I don't know if I should even hold the door open. Is that going to be yeah, offensive? He's going to think that. You know? Yeah, exactly. So, um, <laughs> and, 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 and I, I totally understand. So I started trying to be like the voice for like pretty much the mediator, the middle person where right. people can ask me and feel comfortable asking me any type of question. And, you know, it would just help educate them for in the future. And that's how I think like life is supposed to be. We have to educate one another. Um, you can learn anything in school, but until you actually experience, you know, real life, then, you know, it's, it's just theory. Like, yeah, it's theory. It doesn't really apply in your day-to-day life. So, but, right. um, like me, like when people hold the door, like I could lift over 315 pounds now. Like I could <laughs> hold the door open, but you know, it's just that thing. Like, you know, they don't, they don't know until, <laughs> but you know, it is because I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you you probably deal with people trying to do stuff for you like oh let me get that for you it's like oh let me help yeah. you out here yeah. <laughs> like, like I take apart my wheelchair to get it I drive an SUV and uh-huh. like yo you need help putting a wheelchair so I'm like well I got here and took the wheelchair out so I don't really need you know that you know assistance but you know I thank people for it and I understand you know there's different levels you know not everybody's as strong as me that you know have to use a wheelchair um right. so. Then in those cases, you don't want to like not open, hold the door open for them. So I think everybody listening. People's intentions are good too. I don't think anyone has malicious intentions. They're trying to be nice. They're trying to be polite. It's just just a little bit awkward because if they, if they don't have a friend maybe like you that they can talk to, they, they don't really know their perspective. So they're just guessing. Exactly. And that's why I like, um, you know, coming on like, like any, Thanks for inviting. Of course, thanks for inviting me on. But I like doing podcasts like this because there's different. There's all types of people out here in this world, and you know, they just hear my perspective of you know being an individual that has to use a wheelchair. Right. So they, it can help educate them for in the future on when they end a particular situation. They'd be like, oh, this guy, you know, I hold a door for him, but I don't necessarily have to. You know, I, <laughs> or I might say, I know I don't have to hold a door for you, but. You know, I just felt like being polite or whatever the case is. Yeah.
Now, now you also do some work on a lot of people. Don't, I, I wasn't aware of this until I saw your TED talk about yeah. how the median income for someone who's disabled is way lower than someone who isn't. Yeah, and it, and that's that's kind of how I got into like like advocating for disabled rights because on my journey when I was trying to find a job after I graduated with my degree in finance, I'll be qualified, but people would typically look at the wheelchair and they have their own um misconceptions and stereotypes and things of that nature that um they really do not know the capabilities of certain individuals like me i don't really need a reasonable accommodation as long as i can roll under a desk and it's a computer screen right there like right i don't need an accommodation for that but um what a lot happens to a lot of individuals they get discriminated against and you know um typically people get injured um not not early in life, but typically after the age of 21. And um, when they have their injuries, they I mean, they still got to support their family, um, still got to make um, um, you still got to make a living somehow right. support yourself at the end. Of right. The day. Right. And with that said, a lot of individuals with disabilities are unemployed and have to rely on like government assistance, such as Social Security, which typically a Social Security payment would be a approximately $700 for a month on average for an individual with, disab- with a disability. So, you know, you could just divide that by four weeks. That's not that yeah. money yeah. you're working with. Especially, yeah, especially yeah. in your market. Being in New York, it's even worse. It's yeah. Like seven, it's like getting like <laughs> $7, you know, yeah. here in Texas. So, um, <laughs> you know. With that said, um, you know, a lot of individuals live under median income um, yeah. levels. So, it's re- very, it becomes very difficult. And then, um, you know, with insurance companies, sometimes they got to pay expenses out of their pocket due to their disability. Um, which is, um, some, some of the things I'm trying to work towards changing because I feel as if, um, social security shouldn't cut disabled individuals off. It should just be like somewhat like a grant or just extra assistance being that you have so many other issues, such as sometimes you have to take the, you know, well, I, fortunately, I drive, but if it was a, if I had to depend on public transportation, I would yeah. have to take a cab a lot of places due to the fact that the trains aren't accessible. Um, I think in New York City, only 20 percent of the subway stations are accessible in New York City, Crazy. which where I'm going to go. And I've been on, you know, trains. Um, I've been on the subway where instead of, you know, elevators out of service and I have to take hold, you know, pull myself up the escalator, um, which. You know, I wouldn't recommend for another per any other individual with the ability yeah. to do, but you know, <laughs> yeah. it beats going ten to twelve blocks to get to my destination. So these are just things that people don't take into consideration. Um, and it affects people. Um, it, luckily, you know, I when I graduated, I had a, you know issues finding a job, but I was fortunate enough to find one within like six months of graduated from college um, with working with the IRS. But, um, well, I, I want to ask you about the IRS, but yeah. before that, <laughs> you bring up IRS. I got some questions. But what I'm really curious about is this, yeah. when you went to these jobs, when, when did you, when did you get turned down in the job interview process? Was it when you showed up at an interview and they would just try to find some way saying, Oh, we don't think you're a fit right now. How did they reject you? Yeah. Well, what typically when they would reject me, it would be like after the interview, um, you know, the interviews typically went well, you know, you answered, you know, all the questions the way they, you know, 
propose them to you. However, I would get like a, a email a few days later. Um, we decided to go with someone else, or it's never was face to face. It was always typically through email. Well, I mean, because you could you could have pulled two cards too, as an African American yeah. man, you could have said, <laughs> yeah. "Look, is, is it because I'm African American and I'm yeah. in a wheelchair?" <laughs> right. <laughs> but then, then that's when I started doing research, and what was alarming is that seventy percent of individuals living with a disability is unemployed in America. Wow. So, mm. Now, wow. if you look at it from that perspective, you like the hardship is real. Um, yeah. Also, yeah. one out of five people identify themselves as having a disability. So that's a pretty big demographic of right. consumers for the economy and the economy, the government and the United States sometimes overlook individuals with disabilities. But I think the an, another reason why individuals with disabilities get overlooked is because a lot of individuals aren't just like out there in social settings. Um, right. We typically, like me personally, I live a full regular social life. So I go to bars, I go to concerts, I go to basketball games, wherever, restaurants. Mm-hmm. So that's where I, you typically interact with people in right. type of settings and you learn from them in those settings. If I'm in a setting and you see me at a bar, hop on a bar stool, which is quite high, you're going to be like, oh, this guy's strong. He's cool. Let me go call the <laughs> or whatever. And, you know, ask some questions. And I think when society sees a greater representation of individuals out there, which is occurring now, then inclusion will increase in the disabled population. And I think the unemployment rate will come down. That's definitely all true. Even with race relations, if the more candid conversations people can have, and it may be uncomfortable at first, but it's important because right now it's all, well, I don't want to say this in front of this person. Like, oh, I'm not going to say that. And that that gets us nowhere. If, whatever people are harboring, just get it out. Exactly. We need, to deal, we need to deal with that. We need yeah. to know why you feel a certain way. You need to be honest about it. And then let's let's move forward with it. We can progress from there. Yeah, let's go past. Exactly. And that's that's. And that was one of the reasons when I was at the IRS, I woke up one day, I was like, I got to leave this job and start. <laughs> or I got to gotta help people because um, everybody was always telling me like how cool I am, but I'm like, I'm not yeah. really helping people on a large scale. So I said, I need to, you know, get myself out there, take a more vocal role because at the end of the day, um, there's no, there's no person we identify with in the disabled community as like a Michael Jordan or like a, Wayne Gretzky or whatever. So right. I said, I'll be that person. Why not? I'll take that role. And um, from that day, my life has changed because of the fact that I'm impacted. I'm creating an impact across the world. I'm reach people from all walks of life reach out to me. And, you know, because of me, like a lot of, you know, companies now um, in regards to fashion, it's creating adaptive clothing where all individuals can, you know, access it and put it on and feel fashionable and feel in the cool and things of that nature. So, yes, it's a lot. But, you know, they just need that one person that says, I want to do it and I want to be that person that I want to do it. If you got a question, ask me the question so you could get over it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even intentional. You're just being who you are and you're doing amazing things. And that as a side effect is inspirational to other people and not just people that are dealing with handicaps. I think a lot of people that 
I mean, people like myself, I saw your training clips. I'm like, wow, that's impressive. That makes me amped up. I'm going to go have a better workout now. We're all inspiring each other in different ways. I like seeing anyone doing anything excellent, whether it's playing the piano or the violin or lifting weights. I love excellence. So when I see someone who's excellent at something, it could be something that I I don't even have an interest in. I'm just like, wow, that person's really good at that. And it's inspiring. Yeah, like, like, it's funny you said that. It's because, like, like my girlfriend, she likes training dogs and, like, she's great at training dogs and Mm. getting them to follow commands. And I'm like, yeah, like a lot of people think I'm weird for this. I'm like, nah, that's excellent. <laughs> well, whenever, whenever someone's really good at something, it's attractive. You like being yeah. around it. It's like, cool to see. Oh, right. Like me, yeah. powerlifting. Like it, 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 I was good at it. Like it's just I. That's and it, I wanted to do it more. When my coach, like, you know how good you are, and I'm like, not really. <laughs> but <laughs> if you go powerlifting, yeah, then I would check the rankings and see where I'm at currently in the rankings, and I'll be like, oh, I'm pretty good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, I, I want to talk about trading because we talked about that early on, but I think that that, that, yeah, that got, got messed up. up. So we'll talk about that again. But before I, that, before that, I've got to know how you ended up at the IRS and what what did you do right. there when you were there? All right, so, <laughs> I don't mind telling people I was a tax analyst. Um, uh oh. Like six years, and then I started training the people that got on the phone and how to, you know, in taxes and things of that nature when they are newbies. And yeah. um, it was, I hated the job. It was not a job. <laughs> I was way too cool for the job. Like, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. You, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it. Like, I, there's nothing wrong with it at all, but it just wasn't for me. You know, when you're working through it and it's just not for you, everybody oh, yeah. hits yeah. them. Every job I've ever had, I'm, I've been an entrepreneur <laughs> for 18 years. Every job I ever had, I knew it wasn't for me. I go, exactly. this is not gonna, I go, this is not where I'm going to be for the next 20, 30 years. Right. That's not yeah. happening. And I was looking is, around at other, exciting. and I would look around at other individuals like my coworkers and I was like, you was here for 40 years. I don't know how you did it. And I afford you for doing it. I couldn't be here for 40 years. I need, to help people and I needed to have an impact on the world and a legacy. And that was my thing. Yeah, and, I, and I don't think the IRS office is the place for those things. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. I wasn't going to find it there. <laughs> yep. So now, let's, let's get into your training a bit. All right. Now, as we were talking early on, you're doing a West side conjugate style training regimen. So what I would love to hear is just what a week of training looks like you, how you break things down. All right. So, yeah, definitely. So I train I, I train specifically in powerlifting three days out the week. I typically try to train like six days out of the week. But um, the other three off days are just usually something light, like calisthenics, cardio, just to stay in shape, keep the blood um, flowing through the muscles. But my three main days are Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. Sunday is my maximum effort day. Um, typically, I try to go up to approximately some... 90 to 93% of my max, depending on what part of the training cycle I'm in and what I'm preparing for. Um, depending on what, how out my next meet would be, um, that also affects my, my training as well, my training regimen. Um, so maximum effort day, I'll do a bench press, typically with the regular, with a straight bar. Um, I'll do approximately, I'll do singles. Uh, I try to do a few warm-ups. So my warm-ups typically look like it's the, I just take the bar, 135, 185, 225, and 250. And then from there, I take a big jump from 225 to 250. And then from there, I start with my singles. So I probably would do about four singles. Um, and I'll work up to about 90 to 
which for me is about 295 pounds. And from there, I will do that. And then I'll do an AMRAP after. Like I will AMRAP a lighter weight about 70% of my max. Typically, I'll aim for three to five reps. Um, or I'll do something like uh, do an overload, something with like a slingshot um, or some type of, you know, some type of overload movement. From there, um, that would be like my max, my main, my main movement. Then I'll do a secondary bench movement, something like a board press or a spoto press um, prior to my accessories. And if I do a board press or spoto press on a maximum effort day, um, it's usually like four by three um, just to get some volume in as well. Then I'll do um, typically I'll do some type of assess- I'll do accessory movement. So I'll either do something for the lats, something for the delts. Um, and something for the tricep on a maximum per day. Then moving forward to Tuesday, which would be typically my light day, I probably work up, I'll do like a board press and work up to about 75% of my max. Um, if that's like a two board press, if it's right. a board press, it'd be a little less, um, because you're going closer to your chest and I'll typically do somewhere, well, with the reps, with the sets and reps, I'll do somewhere around six by two of a board press, either one board or two board. And from there, I'll move on to like accessory movements. Um, the reason being is because you don't want to overwork one muscle. Um, right. No. And, and also you don't want to develop a weakness also. So each movement has its specifics on what it's working. Um, typically with the board press, I'll do a closer grip so that way I engage more triceps and, um, but I'll still get, you know, my nervous system, which is most importantly when it comes oh, yeah. to lifting, it's your nervous system. 100%, 100%. Which people don't, um, realize when it comes to building strength, if your nervous system can't, um, is not pretty much acclimated to the weight yet or adapted to the weight yet, um, you're never going to move it. So after 100%. I do like, um, one of those bench movements, I will do a heavy hold of something, you know, in excess of like 360 pounds, um, just to get my nervous system ready. And then from there, I'll go on to accessory movements. Um, another thing is you want to change up the type of movements you do each time you train. You don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over because your muscles is, it adapts and, yeah it would stop growing and it would stop breaking down and tearing because you need the slight tears in order to get bigger, to get stronger. But yeah. So it would just stop tearing eventually. So on a day like that, I'll probably do some pull-ups. Maybe on a light day, I'll do more body weight focused exercises such as pull-up, push-ups. I typically always do a movement for the back, for the tries and something for the delts. Um, something for the delts could be like side lateral raises. Um, those right. work, those work pretty good. Um, and what a lot of people don't know when it comes to powerlifting, especially and specifically with bench pressing is not so much your chest that you're, um, trying to build. You got to build the muscles that attach to the chest. So you got to yes. build the foundation. And, um, once you build that solid foundation, then you will start seeing your numbers increase and you will start seeing, you know, more explosion. And then that goes to day three. Day three is the speed day. Um, it's all about velocity. And, um, if anybody ever followed Louis Simmons or Westside Barbell, you oh, yeah. know, speak a lot about speed and how speed builds power. 
Right. And accommodating resistance. So with that said, um, I'll do a band workout or a chain workout movement with the bar, um, about 60 to 65% of my max, but I'll do a lot of volume. So like 12 by three, um, and depending on how the weight is moving and the speed of the weight, I may, you know, I may go up to like 68% of my max, the most, but on that day, it's all about speed. Um, I'll take a minute break, um, sometimes 45 seconds, but the reason why is you don't, you want to give time, you don't want to give too much time. You want to stay under tension. That way your muscles will build and speed creates power. So, oh yeah. Also, I track my speed as well. So we have a device that we use in a gym, tracking that gaggling on um, strength, which is everything is powerlifting there. We got the Cambridge bars, all type of bars, but um, the specialty bars, but um, yeah. So we'll measure the velocity to see if, you know, the bar speed and things of that nature. But, um, this, this is how, how, do, how does it measure the velocity if it's just something you attach to the bar? Um, yeah. One makes this device that attaches to the bar. And once it the bar is moving, it can kind of tr- it tracks the speed. Um, that's what <laughs> innovation is crazy these days. So, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So and it can kind of see when it when it comes to a pause and then when you um explode as well. So right. It tracks all of that. Um, now to further with the chains for those out there listening, the reason for the chains and the bands is, um, with the chains, it's, I like the chains because at the top it's heavier. So yep. instance, you're, you may have 120 pounds of straight weight on, but 120 pounds of chains. Um, yep. so you could just do the math. That's 240 pounds at the top yes. and it reloads at the bottom. So where you're actually weaker is at the bottom of the bench where your shoulders is furthest from your chest. Right. And when your shoulders is further, and that's where injuries occur and things of that nature. So that's that's the purpose of the chain. So instead of having so much stress at the bottom, you're able to, you know, ease it from the bottom, get it off your chest. And as you're um, accelerating up on the, um, as you're pushing the bar up, it's definitely going to get heavier and, you're getting a full range of motion. Yeah, you get that. You get that forced acceleration skill yeah. set that Louie calls it. And I, I've been using chains with deadlifts in particular, and they really help. I hit a PR just a couple weeks after using chains. Yeah. The chains really teaches you how to accelerate the bar to, yeah. to the top. And evenly also. Um, yeah, oh, no doubt. So, yeah, that's, and that's, that's what my three days look like. And on a speed day also, I'll do a lot of volume as far as my accessory movements. Lately, I've been doing about 12 to 15 because I'm in a hypertrophy stage of my training. So, um, for those of you who do not know what the hypertrophy stage is, <laughs> cause I know I'm getting a bit technical, but, um, yeah, we, we have a fitness audience for yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have to go into details, but yeah, um, yeah, so right now, I got to meet in November, um, a national qualifier to mm-hmm. go to world championships in Bogota, Colombia in 2021. So right now I'm in the hypertrophy phase because I'm about two months out. Um, so what I'm going to do is, you know, work on building muscle so that way I could hold heavier weights. Um, yes. mm-hmm. so that's, so it's been a lot of volume. So, um, certainly and to transition, nutrition is big. Um, <laughs> Nutrition is the key. Nutrition and recovery. So, like, what I like yeah. to tell people, you can move whatever weight, but um, nutrition and recovery is most important. So, if you're not getting adequate amounts of sleep, um, and so you're not recovering, you know, 
the way you're supposed to. And if you're not putting the right things in your body, then that PR you're looking for is always going to stay the same. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so right now I've been eating, following a vertical diet. Um, it's been really helpful for me as far as losing, well, maintaining my weight and gaining strength. So, how, how does how does this diet work? You yeah, I was about to say, yeah, yeah, break down a vertical diet for those. Of all right, so um, typically, what you know, the fitness world, red meat is not a killer. So <laughs> we uh, with the vertical diet, um, it incorporates a lot of red meat, um, sim- um, starches such as I mean, carbs such as like white rice, um, and a vegetable typically. The um, the white rice is pretty much one of the key points of the vertical diet. Um, it helps break down the, the nutrients that's with the meat, the red meat in particular, um, and helps it get to your muscle adequately. Um, I don't really control most of my diet. My nutritionist does. So when being on Team USA, so um, she just tells me pretty much the foods to um, gather and the combinations I can make from there. And I just follow it and, so I got a lot of salmon in it, um, red meat, and a lot of lean meats, actually. And are, are you eating several times a day, or how do you break I that down? Eat, I, all right, so I try to hit 100 and around 140 grams of protein per day because I weigh about 135, and when I compete, I'm at least under 130 pounds. So I try to just to keep the muscle on because I get rid of some of the macronutrients, such as the carbs. I cut the carbs um for the most part. So I eat a lot of veggies, but I'll eat like five times a day, typically. Yeah. So you're doing a standard bodybuilder type, yeah. even powerlifting nutrition styles. Every few hours, you're just loading up on nutrition. Yeah. Um, for the most part, tons of like, I try to eat. Um, also, I try to eat stuff with sodium. Um, yeah. You want to hold on. You want more water retention. Exactly. Powerlifting. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So I try to hold on. I try to eat stuff dense with sodium. Um, and I try to have enough uh, adequate amount of potassium throughout my day. Right. So I'll mm-hmm. eat a fruit such as like either like a kiwi, banana or watermelon. Actually, yeah. watermelon is pretty good for electrolytes. So I, mm-hmm. I typically favor watermelon as far as a pre and post workout, um, carb. But, um, yeah. So that's what, what about what about supplements? You take creatine or oh, I'm, I'm unallowed to see um when on a national level when you're on a national team we are unallowed we're not allowed to take supplements because oh, really? you're not oh, regulated. So oh okay. Mm, okay now they do give us. Uh, I mean, if it's not regulated, how do they know whether you're taking <laughs> right. any supplements? Well, <laughs> <laughs> right. So they find traces of anything and oh, like, okay okay I'll be there actually testing. Yeah, we're okay. actually testing um. So, you can supplement it with an adequate diet, though, um, with the right nutrients. You're pretty good. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, diet is the most important thing. I mean, I design and sell supplements, so obviously I have a little bit of a bias. But of course, even I will say that nutrition and lifestyle and sleep and all those things are the most important things yeah. to focus on. And then supplements are supplemental. So you need vitamin, vitamin D is, for instance, everyone needs vitamin D. I think everyone. Oh, yeah. Vitamin D deficient. A lot, <laughs> a lot of it. Most people don't take as much. I, I mean, I take 20,000 IUs of vitamin D every day to get into the optimal range. And that, that's a pretty exactly. aggressive dosage, but it's what I need. Like Dr. Mark Gordon, he's a friend of ours. He's, I, I talked to him a while back and he said that they said the standard upper limit is 4,000 IUs. Now, Dr. Gordon's retort is 
What if 4,000 IUs doesn't get you into the optimal range? Then what are you supposed to do? You just keep taking 4,000 IUs? I mean, what do you do? You just accept having low levels? He goes, you have to take whatever the amount is to get into the optimal range. Exactly. So, um, yeah, that's another thing. So, like, our coaches do understand, like, certain supplements, you know, we are, we're going to need, like, vitamin D, we're going to need. Uh, and they give us a list of stuff that we can take that it's a little bit on the, like, you know, allowable side, um, because, like, like, Metrex Collegiate, there's a Metrex Collegiate powder, um, protein powder. Yeah. They say, you know, has been fully tested through the Olympic facilities and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I just don't take anything. I just eat, eat. I mean, like, you can put whey protein. I'm sure, um, athletes out there take, you know, whey protein sometimes, but. Sure. Yeah. It's, I try to get everything through food for the most part. Now, what's your, what's your, what's your day job right now? I mean, is this, all, is this all you do? This is running your organization, yeah. and lectures and so forth? Yeah. Running the organization, powerlifting. Um, I also do modeling. So like I, I've been in, featured in commercials before. I've been in a McDonald's commercial, a Google commercial and an Apple commercial. Really? Very cool. Yeah. yeah I do the modeling and then, yeah, like, and also like I do consulting. So I, if individuals or if people have entities out there, small businesses and just need to, you know, be get into the um fit the ADA requirements and regulations and things of that nature, I help them. Um because, you know, a lot of business owners don't know that like, you know, if you don't provide adequate access for individuals with disabilities to go into their facilities or entities, that's discrimination. Yeah, it's yes. Yeah, yeah. Actually discrimination. So, mm-hmm. you know, I try to make sure people comply with those things. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, they're unaware that it's a civil rights issue. So, yeah. you know, with that said, you know, I try, you know, I, that's why I have consultant. <laughs> Yeah, that was gonna be my next thing. I was gonna, I was gonna swerve over to that finance degree that you have, and talk about, especially in these days and times right now. You know, you just said <laughs> also modeling in Apple. I'm like, so you know, what are you thinking like with COVID and everything going on right now? Is is there a situation where you know there are those who um who who are disabled? And you, like you're saying that so many of them fall below the medium uh, when it comes to income. Do you do any consulting financial wise, especially for those who are disabled to kind of help them, especially when we have the Internet now? And so those that may not be able to get a physical job out there are nine to five. You help them with ways to do things on their own, but just by using a computer, especially now with COVID. There are a lot of people now that are sitting at home and having to work from home. So it's like an ideal situation for almost everyone at this point. Do you, do you ever like have to help anyone with that? Well, I don't really provide financial literacy courses due to the fact that I'm just doing so much. But like, if anyone right. asks me for advice, I'm mm-hmm. always willing to lend a hand. Um, what I do do though is I do provide resources for individuals with disabilities that are looking to, you know, gain employment and want to do like, um, you know, job trainings and things of that nature. So I'll do connect them with, you know, the proper organizations or the proper, um, government, um, you know, programs that would allow them, you know, to partake in things of that nature. And some of them do have financial literacy courses in which they can um, sign up for and things of that nature. But, um, yeah, that, 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 that would be a goal of mine, but like it just, I'm doing so much that it's difficult. So I try to just focus on doing things that, um, increases representation, um, within the disabled community and also just, you know, 
be that figure and that face out there where people can identify with and say, you know, one day, like if the person is disabled, one day could say, I want to be like Garrison. Or if an individual is able-bodied individual, like, let me reach out to Garrison. He might have a resource for me. My husband just got injured. My wife just got injured or whatever the case may be. So that's, you know, more or less, you know, the lane I'm in. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's important to have that. I mean, I, I deal with the skin condition. If you see my face, I've got this depigmentation on the right lower side of my face. So it's it's almost like an albino person's skin. This happened from yeah. a serious sunburn when I was 28. I'm 46 now. So it's not Vita Ligo, but it looks exactly like Vita Ligo for someone who just sees it. And as a result of that, though, just being out there in the open, people, I've been teaching courses all over the world for 13 years, and then I transitioned into supplements. So I'm, I'm, I'm on interviews where you see my face. So I'm out there. And I bring that up because I've had parents email me and say that their kids have Vita Lika and they're having really hard time with it. They're having serious mental and emotional distress. And a lot of times these are 12 or 13. And I go, well, look, with your supervision, just I can get on the phone and talk to them. Or if you want to have them email me, I'll, I'll just be happy to just give some words of encouragement. And that that actually really helps them. And then that really helps me, too, because it took me a while to to come to terms with a drastic change in my physical appearance when it first happened. It was very disheartening at the time. Right. It was difficult to deal with. So, but it's when you when you help other people that are in a similar situation, I feel like that's where the real healing hearts starts. When you've been through any kind of trauma and you can help someone else who's been through that, it helps you just as much as it helps them. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And that's, that's another reason why when I was sitting there at the IRS, like, I got to go out of here. There's so much people that, you know, can use my help that right. just, it just that it was my calling. Like, it was like an epiphany and then it was my calling. And I said, let me go for it for the most part. And, you know, I would never, I haven't looked back since. And I never. Well, thought, I mean, no, nothing feels better than helping people out. Nothing. Exactly. It's so gratifying. It's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's the most, it's the thing I enjoy the most about what I do is that you're, you're getting responses from people saying, this really helped me out or I read your book and this really helped me with this. I mean, there's, there's no better high than that. Yeah. And, and then you just keep chasing that over and over. Yeah, and yeah exactly. <laughs> now, now you want to step it up. You want to do it bigger. You want to do it better. You want to help more people. Exactly. And I, yeah. nothing more fulfilling in life and joyful in life than really helping yeah. someone and them feeling, you know, satisfied and the gratitude that you get from them. Well, there, there's just so much people carry. People carry so many burdens on their own most of the times. They don't feel they can talk to anyone about it. And maybe they don't feel comfortable going to a therapist. But real friends will want to shoulder that burden with you. You know, they'll exactly. want to know. They'll want to know. It's like, look, I want to know what the problem is, and let me help you with that. It's not something where I'm, I feel it's an obligatory type thing. So I think that all the burdens any of us carry, that there's people that will help us carry those. You don't have to carry it alone. Exactly. So it's all up to you. It's and it's how you see things. Um, you see, you're gonna see the glass as half full or half empty. If you see it as half full, you're gonna make you know sacrifices, make changes, and you're just gonna adapt and that's one of the main things about my injury. I, I found a way to adapt. Um, when life yeah. throws lemons, you make lemonade out of it. Right. So it's all about, you know, you gotta see, you gotta see what, it for what it is. And do, then do you ever, do you ever have dreams about still being able to walk or do you ever, sometimes you see someone running or I don't know, you just have these moments of, man, I wish I could still do that. Um, that's a good question. Actually, <laughs> no. I mean, I do like, ambulate I do walk somewhat with like my crutches and braces and things of that nature. Oh, okay. But um 
as far as the desire, I will, of course, I would like to walk again, but if, you know, life goes and I never get the, re- the function returned, um, it won't stop anything. It won't change anything. Like it won't affect my happiness more or less. Like it just, cause I've yeah. adapted. I've not necessarily like no one ever accepts their situation totally. Right. But right. You adapt and you just say life goes on. We all live in yeah. with something. Just keep it moving. <laughs> right. happy, so. And also not, not to diminish your situation, but it could have been way worse, right? Like a Christopher Reeve situation. I mean, that would be horrible. That would be really difficult to deal with. I mean, you have, you have, you have mobility. You can actually drive a car. You can work out. You can move your upper body. You, you can, you speak really well. So you can, you can be really functional and do things you still really enjoy. But someone like Christopher Reeve, I mean, he was dependent on, on his wife and other people helping him for everything. He couldn't do anything on his own anymore. I mean, that, I can't imagine how difficult. That must have been to deal with. And then there's a study out there that shows that, but then, it, and that was another thing that like woke me up. There's a study out there that shows that severe depression is worse than being a quadriplegic, which, but yeah, wow. And, um, if you just think in that term, it's like, wow, you, anybody could be living with something and it's just not visible, but right. affecting them in such a matter that, you know, they're immobile. <laughs> and with that said, it's like, what I'm doing now is just fulfilling that I can connect with those people as well because they like look at your obstacles. What I I got to get out of this depression. There's no reason for me to feel the way I feel if you're overcoming everything and knocking down the doors. Well, and, the, well the thing with depression is the thing with depression is people often confuse. There's there's really two major forms of depression from my point of view. You have circumstantial depression, and that's yeah. more sadness. That's more that your mother died or a loved one died or something like that. So you're dealing with sadness from a circumstance. Exactly. And, then there's, and then there's biochemical depression, which is what I have. And I've had it my entire life. And with biochemical depression, it is completely independent of circumstances. Circumstances have nothing to do with why you feel the way you do. Right. And that is extremely difficult for someone who's never had that to understand because they think everything is circumstantial. They're going, hey, you look good. You're doing well financially. you got great people in your life. What do you have to be depressed about? And I go, it's not circumstantial. It's biochemical. And that's what makes it more insidious and hard to deal with. Exactly. And it's like an imbalance. So, you know, I also, you know, I do study mental health because I know like a lot of individuals who suffered spinal cord injuries also have mental health issues as well. And I think it's due to like, you know, circumstance a lot of times, um, you know, the predicament that they're currently in, which is what, you know, lowers their self-esteem, lowers their confidence and things of that nature. So I try to uplift those individuals, you know, like and it's typically easier. Um, circumstance is way easier to uplift someone who. It's just because of their predicament. You know, it's not like any imbalance. It's just their predicament. Right. It's a lot. It's, I found that it's a lot easier to motivate individuals like that. Um, or I find that they feel motivated because then they feel as they, I could put myself in his shoes and I right. could do the same thing. Which is another great thing as well. So well, that, that that's important for everybody. It's important to be relatable. I, like I'm half Indian, right? I'm half white. I'm half Indian. Okay. Now, growing up, my mother gave me all these comic books of Hindu mythology, so all these Hindu he- heroes, people who looked like me, essentially Indians, in there doing amazing things. They're super powerful, all powerful beings. And I never really thought about it until recently what a positive effect that had. Because as a little kid looking through this. I'm going, okay, you know, this is my ancestry and these are people that look like me versus if I'm watching 
or if I'm reading traditional American cartoons, it's all white based heroes. Right. So it's not right. it's not relatable, at least unconsciously. You're not looking at them going, hey, they're like me. And that's important. It's a, people exactly. under, people understate yeah. that. Usually usually it's white people. They're like, you know, I don't get it. It's like, well, of course, you don't get it because all that's relatable to you. But you don't understand the perspective of growing up Very in a society where everything that's considered the best is white. So everything, right. every, everything is you, you need to do what white people do to be successful. That's the message all of us get, whether it's yeah. conscious or unconscious. So to, to see greatness in something that's more relatable, that's really empowering. And it's very important, too. Exactly. So and that was another thing um, when I started out with my journey, like I was saying before, it was no Michael Jordan, it was no Wayne Gretzky. So if you're a child who's, um, you know, dependent on a wheelchair and you're like 11 years old, or 13 years old, and, you know, when the hormones start to kick in and you just want to do something, you want to be a man, you want to have fun. I want I wanted to be the person they could look at and say, all right, you know, it's being in the chair is not so bad. Um, I could still be athletic. I could still enjoy myself. I could still be fashionable. I could still go out in public and socialize amongst well, everyone. You, you could you can still have a great looking lady. You know, I think that's probably <laughs> right. a, lot, a, lot, a lot of guys are probably thinking, well, damn, man, I didn't have any game before. What am I going to do now? <laughs> <You know? Exactly. laughs> so, with all that I said, you know, I give, you know, it's that hope. So. If you're okay. depressed and you see see that and, you know, you have a spinal cord injury, you're like, oh, well, there's someone else out there doing it. Let me reach out to him, ask him what he did and yeah. things like that. And that's that's what the world needs more of. It just needs more people like we was talking about at the beginning of just talking and getting over things like, yeah, this is why you feel this way. I understand now this is <laughs> situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those those candid discussions are important, but we're, we're in such a cancel culture society that oh someone says anything. It's like, well, look, we, we're just going to flush you out of existence. You don't get to exist anymore. And I go, look, that's that. We, we can't just bury people under a rock every time we don't like what they say. You know, that's very unhealthy and dangerous for a society to start succumbing to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, what's. Did you train today or what do you have going on yeah, today? Yeah, I trained already. Actually, I trained um, early this morning around 9 o'clock. Um, what I did was today was a light day. So I just did a couple of board presses. I think I worked up to about 285 pounds. And, nice. Um, yeah, I did that for uh, did six sets of three today. So that was a pretty good workout. Um, it was a one board press. Um, and then Thursday is going to be a uh, – pretty much a speed day so i probably do bands or chains sometimes i even do chains and bands together yeah that's no um, joke yeah it's yeah, really no joke i like it though i want to try that <laughs> yeah, to really get a workout um and then um like tomorrow like what i do since that's pretty much my kind of a recovery day i probably go to the park do some calisthenics for a little while um and yeah, then, there's cool. There's cool clips of you doing pull-ups in a wheelchair. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, in New York City, um, we practice yeah. more calisthenic training as well. So right, right. There's a culture, there's <laughs> yeah. a culture of that. Yeah, yeah. Culture, yeah. the Kings. You know, got all those guys. You know, who yeah, it's a famous like on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I sometimes hang out with those guys and train with them for a little bit. Oh, that's um, dope. Yeah, depending on what park you go to, it's a different YouTube um, influencer. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. There's, somebody, there's somebody filming something in every park now yeah. in, the, in America, probably the world. And then when they see me, they already, they're like, oh, he's doing pull-ups too? I got to get him in the video. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the cool thing, because, like, 
Yeah. I'll do pull-ups with my chair and I could do pretty much as much pull-ups as someone is doing without any weight attached to them. So. Right, right. Cause I used to do regular pull-ups and I would beat everybody like in pull-up competitions and stuff. So that's, that's when I said, you know what? I'm going to take away the disadvantage and use the chair as well because people think that like, the um, it's so much easier for me. So I was beating everybody. Yeah. And it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just like too easy. And it's funny being the disabled person, you're saying this is too easy for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, people are <laughs> like, oh, it's too, it's, oh, it's easy for you. You know, it's easy for you to do it. <laughs> I'm like, let me put the chair, to, I'll attach the chair to me and add like 40 pounds and I still could do pretty a number. <laughs> like 10. All I can see. All I can think about is just like, I can just see you like rolling to the park and the Rough Rider. You know, I'm thinking about the, the Rough Riders workout DVD from back in the day. I can just see those guys while well, you're doing pull ups. See this kid? He's a problem. This dude's a problem right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's still one of my favorite DVDs, man. I watched that though. <laughs> yeah. Garrison, how did, how did you end up doing that TED talk? Oh, the TED talk. So how I came about that was, all right. So I'm, I had a cool, like, just a friend. It was this lady that just was a friend. And her name was Connie Chi. And she was, we were speaking at Starbucks, like, had an impromptu meeting. That's how all the meetings occur in New York. You just go to Starbucks. And she was like, what are you doing with your life? And I'm like, basically, I'm trying to leave my job. I don't know what I'm still doing here after six years. And she's like, and she's like, you ever thought about like public speaking. And I'm like, at this time, this was approximately three years ago. I haven't never spoke to a crowd. I only spoke like casually amongst like two or three people in like a social setting, like a gym or something. And she's like, you should do a TED talk. And I'm like, a TED talk? Only like famous, incredible people do these things. And I'm just going on and on. Like, you think I could really do a TED talk? And she's like, yeah, you could really do a TED talk. So, um, Actually, I started going, I went home that same day after that conversation. I started Googling, um, what, like, TED Talks, how to go about the process. And I went to the website and I looked up to see where was the next TEDx's being held. Um, especially close to my area because they're all throughout the country or throughout the world, actually. So I wanted to get something like that was pretty local because, you know, as far as transportation and things of that nature, it's right there. Um, I'm going to be somewhere close. And it was actually holding a TED Talk that was like three months. So this must have been September. In three months, it was like going to be in like January or February. They were having a TED Talk in Deer Park, Long Island. And I live in New York City, so it's about a 30-minute commute. So I And it was going to be on adversity. So I'm like, oh, this is a topic that's right up my alley. I could talk about myself, like how I overcame adversity. So I wrote a two-page um, – they wanted a two-page paper basically um, detailing how you're the – right person to speak on this particular topic and what's your way of changing it like what's your innovative way of you know like bringing people together and you know educating them on how you want to you know overcome adversity basically right so from there i wrote a you know a two-page paper um i remember it was like um two months later i get an email saying that I've been selected and the TEDx, the TED talk is like a month later or whatever. And I remember asking my cousin, like, what do I do now? I never spoke in front of people. <laughs> so he's like, watch YouTube. So I, you know, I watched YouTube and then prior to your TED talk, like a few days prior, you meet with a speech coach actually. And they, you know, want to go through like what your talk is going to be about and things of that nature. And they sometimes give you like, um, pointers or advice. 
And I told her what my talk was about, how life is going to, how life is like lemonade, how life throw you lemons and it's up to you to make lemonade. And from there, um, and I went into more details and she's like, Oh, I don't even need to help you with anything. You're fine. What what moments in that period? And it was like, what? I'm fine. I don't know how to. And then I got on stage and I just did it. And what, like I tell a lot of people is that like, it all started with my dream of just like wanting to change the world. And that's how certain things started to fall into place. But let alone like, as far as like the Ted talk, um, you know, you guys speak stuff into existence and like, I said I wanted to do it. I wanted to public speak, and that was my opportunity. And it was a lot of people was telling me like, "Oh, I've been applying for like ten years, five years, all these." And I'm like, "Maybe it wasn't your time." And I was like, "When it's your time, God makes you skip the line, so you just skip and then you yeah. go for it." So, right. and sometimes you're better off if you don't get it too soon because maybe right. you hone your skills a little bit more and you're more polished. I mean, if I did a TED Talk now, it would be way better than, let's say, early in my career where I was just getting things going. I have a ton of public speaking experience now. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to then. And maybe for me, that's what I needed to, like, um, catapult me to get in, to get out there and be more vocal and get, become someone, like, in society at, looked upon as, like, a disabled rights influencer and advocate. So it took that. And I think it took me to speak a lot of things into existence. What a lot of people don't know is, when I did the TED Talk and, you know, I manifested a lot of stuff. Before I was even on Team USA, I said I was going to be a Paralympic medalist one day in the beginning of the talk. And things just started to fall in place from there because now I've set a, a bar to train towards. And when I set that bar to train towards, that's how I think helped me with my dedication and motivation to powerlifting. Um, I wasn't even part. Actually, I wasn't even doing powerlifting. I was still shot put javelin and discus and then powerlifting found me shortly after so it was like a year span it was just like one thing after another but um you gotta do hard work you gotta gotta that's life well there's no way to avoid that that's why i always laugh at all these marketing seminars and like oh here's the shortcut to success i go look just the fact that they're even using verbiage like that you know it's a con because no one can prepare you for whatever path you're going to be on. I don't care how many books you read. I don't care how many people you talk to. Sure, you're going to pick up some useful things, but there's going to be problems you deal with that other people haven't dealt with, not in the same way anyway, and you're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. And the hardships and the adversity, that's going to happen. In fact, you should welcome that. That's that's necessary for growth. Yeah, you need that for growth. You look at – I was talking to a friend about this the other day. I go, look at anyone who's an interesting person that you talk to. They all have their hardship stories, traumas, difficult things they had to overcome. There's not a single interesting person that hasn't dealt with a lot of difficulty in their lives. Exactly, and you need that. That's And that's what I try to – like newly injured individuals, I always tell them specifically, like, you don't know why this occurred, but you don't know where it's going to take you because you're going to learn mm-hmm. something about yourself that, you know, a lot of people don't get an opportunity to do. And you're going to know right. how you could take and where you could go. And it's you got to look up and I always look up. I never look down. I always say if something goes wrong in my life, I just say I got to look up. I got to look for, towards the next day and the next day is going to be a better day. And right. that's that's how you gotta live. You gotta the live. hope is well, hope is an essential ingredient that that should be on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Is right. hope. 
Because we all need hope. We all need, if things are going well, we need the hope that they're going to keep going well. If things are not going well, we need hope that it's going to get better. So right. without, without that line of thinking in your mind, it's, it's hard to deal with the present. Yeah, exactly. Dealing with the hard time. Yeah, exactly. So you definitely need hope and, and you know, you got to just put in the work. So I always like to combine things. Like I always tell people, it's just not hope. You got to go put in that work. You can't right. just dream and not take action on your dream. Well, and I hate to quote, I hate to quote him given current events, but <laughs> Bill, Bill Cosby once said that, you know, it's, it's, it's great to dream, but at some point you have to wake up. Now, I understand right. the irony of him saying that given what he's accused of and arrested. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still, it's still, it's still, it's still a good line. It's like, you know what, Bill? I, I can see why you came up with this line because you have a lot of chances. To yeah, make yeah case studies, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, it, but it's true. You can't just dream. At some point, you have to wake up and you have to put you have to put things in motion. When I, when I got certified in kettlebell training, right? Because I'm I'm most well known as a kettlebell instructor. That's how I started my career in 2002. Okay. So I went to this certification, Pavel Satsaline's second certification, the RKC in Minneapolis. And I remember there was about 22 of us at that event. And afterwards, everybody's talking about what they're going to do. They're like, oh man, this is so awesome. I'm going to start doing this when I get home. I'm going to start doing that. Several months later, I was the only one that was doing anything, and other people actually noticed that. They're like, man, you know, I remember we were all talking about what we are going to do, but <laughs> you're the only one doing anything. And I go, that's because I, I see this as my shot into the fitness industry. So I understood the weight, the value of it. I go, this is something, this is my ticket into an industry that I want to get into. This is my gateway into it. So I'm not taking it lightly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put everything I have into it to get the outcome I want. While for everyone else, it was more, oh, it would be cool to do this, and oh, it would be fun to do that. I go, no, 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 this has to happen for me. This is how I'm going to get into <clears throat> the industry and career I want to be in. Yeah, see? It's, it, see, you knew that it took steps, and Rome wasn't built in a day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know what? You know what? When you, I've been working out hard since I was 18, so you okay. learned that lesson from weight training. It's, it's probably the most important lesson you learn from physical training is that this process takes a long time. And it it almost always takes longer than you would like it to. I mean, it took me two years to add 20 pounds to my deadlift recently. And people, a lot of people, if you told other people that, they'd be like, two years? I mean, you worked your ass off for two years for 20 pounds? I go, it's, it's not about the two years or the 20 pounds. It's about setting the goal and actually achieving it, and no matter how long it takes. Because that's empowering. It was really empowering for me to have a goal in mind and persevere and <laughs> – pun intended, pull it off. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Seriously, and um yeah, that's the same that's what I always tell people about um powerlifting as well. Like it's it's symbolic of life if you think about it. Because like it is your progress is never gonna be straight vertical. You're gonna definitely have tons of setbacks. Um you know, it's gonna you could go year, like you said, it took you twenty two years to add twenty pounds to your deadlift and like I've known people that same thing. Like it took years to add five pounds to a bench press. But even in my case, I, I could tell people, like I told people before, like I was stuck at like 280 for the longest. And then one day I hit 305 pounds and it, it was just that consistency. Cause there's, there's still things happening in the background that you don't even know that's occurring. So like you were strengthening other muscles for that deadlift to get it 20 pounds. But if you would have quit, it would never happen. At that right. So, right. And then it would be just another thing of, oh, yeah, I tried to do that and wasn't <laughs> able to pull it off. 
as of and people are like hey, whatever happened to that goal, Mike? Remember you said you wanted to pull six oh five? It's like oh yeah, yeah 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 you know I yeah, had, yeah. I had to move on. I got I got what to happened was <laughs> what happened was <laughs> I hate to be that person that well first of all I don't like to talk about anything I'm trying to do too much because I feel like that takes away from it as well. But it's also good sometimes to put it out there. Go hey this is what I'm working on. I'm going to hit this number by this date because now there's a level of accountability. You don't want to miss it. And have to come up with excuses. So there's a little bit of a yin yang with that. Still there? I'm here. Yeah. I'm, oh, here. I'm here. <laughs> I don't know if I got disconnected or that was such a profound statement that I had dead silence after that. <laughs> well, Garrison, bad. This has been awesome. We've kept you on Definitely. for a while. Definitely. Yeah. What do you What do you have going on? What's up next? Where can people find out more? All right. About what do you have uh, going on? Well, you could definitely stay too. I will have some upcoming events as soon as this COVID crisis calm down. But you can search for me on Instagram, Garrison Red. Um, you can follow my, you could take a look at my website and follow its page, the Garrison Red Project. And the website is the Garrison Red Project.org. Also, I'm on Facebook, Garrison Red, YouTube, Garrison Red, Google search Garrison Red. Garrison Red is everywhere. <laughs> Just Garrison Red and I'll come right up. Awesome, man. Well, hey, we appreciate it. You're a, you're a great inspirational story. Love what you're doing. And hopefully we generate some donations for yep. your organization. Yep. Yeah. If nothing else, I'm going to keep donating to it. Yep. So thanks. It's, thanks, and it's appreciated. And these donations go to help individuals achieve independence. So a wheelchair typically costs – a wheelchair like the one I have, which is titanium, easy to put in your vehicle, yeah. um, weighs – when I take it apart, the frame weighs 12 pounds. Um but insurance companies typically don't cover it, so unless you have certain, you know, high option insurances, so something, you know, just help other people, you know. So, well, well, let's talk about that for a few minutes if yeah. you have time. Yeah. Just what yeah. your nonprofit? Yeah, let's get into that a little bit. Yeah. This, this is important. So, what what's what was the problem that you saw that provoked you to start this organization? Well. It was a few problems all wrapped into one, and it was all the few problems. I'm going to get into that in a second, but the one major problem is independence and the price of independence. So with that said, and then you're going to see why I say the price of independence. All right. So when a person is injured with a spinal cord injury, um, it's very expensive because of the fact that the hospital care and things of that nature, it could be it could be quite um, expensive and insurance companies typically do not cover long stays for individuals with spinal cord injuries. Now, these are individuals that could be paralyzed from the neck down, the waist down, the chest down. At the end of the day, they are learning how to live with a new version of themselves because a lot of things that they have previously was able to do they are unable to do and unable to control like voluntary leg movements some people have digestive issues that um come from their spinal cord injury and yeah. all different natures so with that said um there's a lot of individuals out there that are unable to be in society due to the fact of the assistive adaptive equipment they have so for instance a hospital wheelchair probably weighs and that would be the standard wheelchair person is issued um in the event that you know they don't have insurance or certain types of insurance um with that said so a hospital chair will weigh approximately about 150 pounds and the wheels doesn't come off um the the chair doesn't collapse and things of that nature 
which can be difficult for someone to drive, um, drive, drive on their own. Like me, I'm totally independent. So I drive my own vehicle. I load my wheelchair into my car myself. Um, if you have a 150 pound chair, it's kind of difficult to load it into your vehicle on your own, especially trying to drag it across your body with that said. So typically manual wheelchairs like one I particularly use is made out of titanium, which is super light. Everything comes off. And the, once everything comes off, the frame only weighs about 15 pounds tops. However, wheelchairs of that nature typically cost in excess of $10,000. So it could cost as much as $15,000. Wow. So what I typically do is I said, you know, we need, I need people to be independent. I want people to go out, enjoy their lives, which is going to lower the unemployment rate, lower depression and things of that nature. At least if anything, it will lower the unemployment rate because they will be able to get to work and things of that nature because they'll be able to get there on their own without using right. Right. Without needing assistance. Also like my wheelchair, I have like, bicycle tire wheels or mountain bike wheels, things like that, just differences where it makes it a smoother ride and something durable for everyday use. That that independence is really important. I remember my brother had a a nasty paragliding accident. Exactly. He he was in a wheelchair for not too long, but he was really frustrated in the wheelchair, and part of it was because he was just so reliant on others. He couldn't drive his car. he, He couldn't do a whole lot. And once he went through part of the recovery process where his leg was in a what's what's called a fixator for a while, then it was in a cast, his right leg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the nurse said, you know, you're not going to be able to drive. And the second she walked out, he's like, he's all flicking flicking her off as she's walking (laughs) out. He's like, fuck you. (laughs) He was was driving later that day. He just used his left foot. He just pushed his right foot out of the way and he used his left foot because he wanted to be independent. I would have been been happy to drive him around, but – it's, yeah. it's not about whether someone's willing to help you or not. It's it's, it's what it's, it's you want to feel confident and yeah. and independent. Exactly. So with that said, I said, you know what? Let me start a non for profit organization where I could provide. Hopefully, even if I provide it to one person or two people, at least I could provide someone with an opportunity of becoming independent again. So I started, um, you know, receiving donations um, for wheelchairs and things of that nature. So you could donate wheelchair any medical. Equipment that you know not being used, and I could provide that to someone that is not fortunate enough to actually attain that particular device due to their um, financial situation. Yeah. With that said, I would I was giving away uh, I still do like but COVID you know slowed things down. But I was giving away on a routinely basis at least once a month. I would give away like two wheelchairs um, that would be donated to me. Or I would save up and provide an individual with a $500 grant so that way it could go towards something they may need. They may need a new walker or certain type of crutches, which their insurance company wouldn't um, cover. So those things are things that are overlooked, but they are very much needed. And that's another reason why, you know, with the average income being below the um, normal in the disabled community, it's very rough for individuals to have to worry about my assistive device and yeah. and I get there. So if I could just help out just a little bit by, you know, providing wheelchairs, providing grants so that they could yeah. get the device, it just, or, or the copay. Sometimes, you know, individuals just have these high astronomical copays where, right. you know, yeah. so 
that was the purpose of me, you know, starting the Garrison Red Project. Cause I just, especially children, I want children to be as independent as possible, be able to go out in society on their own and not be dependent on other people to actually have to take care of them or take them around because it lowers your self esteem at the end of the day. And it, and at, we all have enough reasons for our self esteem to be lowered. So like, this just adds to help and it boosts, give them that confidence to get back into society. Yeah, 100 percent. You know, it'd be interesting. I think as I hear you talk about how difficult it is to get hired often and that the median wage is so much lower, it sounds like encouraging entrepreneurship would it be is. a big asset yeah. for any. I mean, it's, it's an asset for anybody, period. But I think in particular, especially members of society that are sub, somewhat marginalized yeah. in traditional yeah. routes. So instead of going like, look, I'm really qualified to do this. So instead of taking my skill set to your business and making you money, I'm going to start my own thing. Because if I'm working at home behind a computer, no one even not that I don't know why anyone would not want to hire someone. Yeah. But let's just say like let's say you're a lawyer or an accountant or something like that. No one even really has to know that that's your part. Of, that's part of your story if you're yeah. just doing everything remotely. Yeah, yeah that's kind of that's kind of where I was going when I was uh, bringing up the whole finance thing and you know consulting and. And helping out with that as well. That's kind of where I was going with that, especially during this day and time. Right. Yeah. Like, a lot right. of people um, do do find like you know entrepreneurial success. Um, you know, the only thing is the issue is with the entrepreneurial um role. Typically, people are afraid to start. That's another thing. So, okay. this like, <laughs> some people are just like skeptical. Like, if I invest this amount of money or if I invest this amount of time, is it actually gonna be lucrative and something I could support myself off of. Um, so I think it's a little bit of fear, which everybody might have, but I do encourage everybody think of something that you're passionate about and, you know, try to make it into a business at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Right. And definitely seek out the resources. So don't, don't just go flying blind because that's a lot yeah. of times that's what intimidates a lot of folks. Is they really don't know where to get the information. So all they do is they hear about entrepreneurship and how great it is from other entrepreneurs or they see it and they see people doing well and they think, oh, okay. But then they think I can't, I couldn't do that because I didn't have anyone to help me out. Or I don't know anyone. I don't have, I don't have those skills to go out and just call people or like that's not necessarily <laughs> the only thing that you're going to be doing. You know, if anything, you know, you be, when you really start rolling, most likely they're going to be calling you. You don't have to go out and make cold calls or anything like that to anyone. They're going to be calling you and you're going to pretty much get to the point. If you're, it's something you're really passionate about, you got to get to a point where you got to have someone to help you with some of those calls after a while. Exactly. If you're really growing, you know, if you're really growing, you know, that's, that's, that's a good problem to have, you know? So, but if, I tell you what, a lot of times it beats going, to that same nine to five every day. And like you said, making someone else rich, you know, cause it's really hard to be highly wealthy and successful working for someone else, especially at certain tiers, you know, in a company. Now I can see if you're the CEO and you're making six and seven figures or something like that, but even that you got to put in the work. That's going to take some time to get there. So they didn't just get that overnight. Someone just, no one just graduated out of like, you know, Wharton Business School, and then the next day they were the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You know, they had to put in some work, too, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, and it all, it all goes back to what I've been saying, like the cliche, Rome wasn't built in a day. Exactly. <laughs> Got to put in that work, no matter what. So Yeah, no matter what it is, whether it's, I mean, if, if it takes two years to add 20 pounds to your deadlift, why would you think you're going to build a successful business, <laughs> you know, in one or two years? 
In years. In two years. Like, yeah, I'm making seven figures in two years. Even someone doing it illegally still got to put in work. work to be on that corner, you know, and work your way up the ranks. You know, you got to do some things. Even someone developing a Ponzi scheme, you got to put in work. You got to make it. Everything takes work. Hey, man, Bernie Madoff didn't just come right out the womb doing what he was doing, man. He put in work. Awesome, man. This has been a pleasure, Garrison. I appreciate definitely, it. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And feel free to contact, reach out to me anytime. Let's stay connected. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. You, you have my cell phone number, so yeah, please get All in right. touch. Anytime I can help you with anything you're doing, please feel free to reach out and let's just stay in touch. It's great definitely, talking to you. Definitely, man. Great stuff. Y'all gentlemen, it, have man. a great day. All right, brother. Take care. Appreciate it. Right. Thank Take you. Care. Take care. That wraps up this week's Live Life Aggressively show. Be sure to head over to MikeMahler.com and NewWarriorTraining.com. Use the coupon code LLA12 and receive 12% off of your total purchase at either of those websites. Also, for more personal protection tips, make sure you head over to NewWarriorDefense.com. Support the production of the Live Life Aggressively show by heading over to Patreon.com and becoming a patron. Simply go to Patreon.com slash LLA podcast. All Patreon subscribers receive Patreon-only access to our brand new show, Afterlife, which is a brand new behind-the-scenes episode that is not available to the public. Our Patreon subscribers also get to enjoy bigger discounts on all of our products by receiving Patreon-only discount codes beginning at 15% off on all products on MikeMahler.com and NewWarriorTraining.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Lastly, be sure to share the episode by following us on social media on Facebook as well as our new account on Instagram. Until the next episode, take care, everybody.